you think it is that people don't go to church? I, I have no idea. Wow. Wow, that's a great question. Lack of needed faith, maybe. I've heard people say church is a money-making scheme before, too. Uh, I think they're pretty rigid, and they're also very um, exclusionary. You know, God loves you, except if you're this or that or that or that. Um, laziness. I worked at a church as a pianist, and it was all about money. The sermons were always talking about money and how they didn't have enough money to support the church. Lack of faith in the religion is a whole. Or uh, people getting drunk early in the morning. I mean, what's more important, you know? Well, either they don't believe in God or it's boring or something like, you know, things like that. Yeah. Some of the churches I've been to are pretty dull. Okay. Why do you think it is that people don't go to church? Uh, it's a waste of time. Because <laughs> it's hard to believe in something you can't touch. A lot of religious institutions haven't kept up to date with... Uh, you know, society as it's changed. Well, look at the churches. I mean, it's it's very, you know, regimented. It has to be this day, this day, this day. I mean, look at the Catholic faith. Stand, sit, preach, sing, pray. <laughs> if I could find then a good Baptist choir to go into my Catholic faith, that would be, that would be awesome. <laughs> I know, I, I think religion was kind of something that was like back in like the 50s and 60s. So I think just with the newer generations, like, and the church is so traditional. We're just kind of moving past it and finding our own ways of, like, yeah. religious outlets. Not really sure. I guess maybe the structure, just people when to pray, when to stand up, when to sit down, when to kneel. They don't need to. It's not a fun place to be for some people. Uh, I guess the, the way the news kind of portrays possibly the, the church and stuff like that. I think it's because the Bible is all a bunch of lies. The church and the traditions, it's kind of a lot of unnecessary stuff, and it, it's just not appealing to many. At church, it's just overkill, and they do the same thing over and over. People just can get tired of that and just stop going. Why do you think it is that people don't go to church? Because um, churches are weird cults. They like to sleep on Sundays. So. Yeah, probably. Maybe they don't believe in that religion or they just don't want to be pressured to give money. And the reason that I don't go to church is because you have hypocrites that go to church that screw people over all week long. And then they think by going to church on Sunday and giving money in a basket that it's going to make up for it. And it's going to buy their way into heaven. And it isn't. So that's why I don't go. Probably nothing wrong with the church. Probably people are just too lazy to go. It is pretty boring and predictable. I don't know. I heard someone tell me once that um, religion is a crutch and it made them feel weak. Well, we go every Sunday, sometimes even on Saturday, so I wouldn't know. It's not really, I don't really care. The church is a money-making scheme. The sermons were always talking about money. It's boring. It's a waste of time. It's very, you know, regimented. We're just kind of moving past it. They don't need to. The Bible's all a bunch of... There's so many places I could go with that with that video. Um, you know, it's outdated. It was, you know, it was something that was important back in the 50s and 60s. <laughs> wow, do I feel old this morning. So I thought what I'd do is talk about money today and uh, <laughs> ask you to dig deep because the church doesn't have enough. I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at the first five verses. Uh, but a lot of different thoughts there. Uh, but the one that, that was predominant to me as I watched that earlier this week in, in asking the question, why don't people go to church? And it actually was said by about three different people in three different ways 
but the net result was the same. I, I don't go to church because it's filled with hypocrites. Because there are people that are acting a certain way during the week. They're, they're living in a, in a way that uh, is really pretty poor. <laughs> and yet they, they come to the church on Sunday and they act like they're pretty good people. Uh, so you, maybe you heard that theme or that, that topic of hypocrisy uh, all the way through there. In other words, what they, what they say and what they do don't match up. Uh, there's an inconsistency there. Uh, you know, they're bad during the week. They pretend to be good on Sunday. Uh, like I said there's a lot of things you could, you could say about that, but uh, one of the thoughts I had as I was watching that the first time is this old adage that I've heard uh, folks say, and, and I've probably even said it several times myself, you know, this idea of, of do what I say, not what I do. <laughs> do what I say, not what I do. Now, that's really a bad statement. Uh, truth be told, uh, probably what, we, what I ought to say if I'm going to say that is, is don't do either. <laughs> don't do what I say and don't do what I do because if I say it but I don't do it, then it really doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> and I'm asking you to do something. I'm giving you an expectation that I'm unwilling to put on myself. It's a common response uh, as we saw in the video this morning. I don't want to be around people that aren't genuine. I don't want to be around people that, that think they're better than me, so to speak. And, and, and probably in some ways we've helped create that. Well, in, in chapter 1 of Romans, uh, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you've caught on to this just a little bit. Uh, if not, we'd invite you to, to go online and, and uh, listen to them to catch up. Uh, but chapter 1 of Romans, Paul basically is trying to say that, that mankind is flawed. And mankind is flawed by idolatry. Now, idolatry is just a theological word that means you worship something other than God. And basically, Paul's conclusion is he looks around the world, his, his world in ancient Rome, he looked around the history that he knew, uh, and he basically said that man worships man. <laughs> I put myself on the throne of life, and whatever that might mean, whether it's a pursuit of money, whether it's a pursuit of prestige, sexual pleasure, whatever it might be, I'm going to do what suits me best because I'm the king. I'm the one whom I worship. And in, and in chapter 1, Paul uh, makes this, this statement very carefully and very directly. Now, the response to that, as he's looking ahead, and as we're getting into chapter 2, Paul's a very good teacher, he's a, he's a very good writer, and he's beginning to think, what will the objections be? What will folks say in response to this idea of man being flawed and needing a Savior? One of the responses that, that he surmises in his mind, led by the Holy Spirit, and correctly so, is that there will be a response from those who are morally self-righteous. Those who look at themselves and see themselves as pretty good people and, and are unwilling to take a closer, closer examination. And these are the kind of folks that say, yes, Paul, that list is true for them, but certainly not for me. And so Romans chapter 2 is going to address the question of self-righteousness, the question of this, this smugness, this, uh, this uh, in, in a sense, what we're going to find, this hypocrisy uh, that drives a wedge between us and God and also harms our relationship with one another. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, follow along in your Bibles, or the passage will be on the screen. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness 
and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray. Father, pray this morning for your Holy Spirit to lead and to guide uh, our worship of you as we now seek to worship you with our minds. Lord, we feel your presence in the, in the songs that we sing when we lift your name up and we praise you and there's a sense of, of connection uh, to heaven, and the worship of God. Father, gets a little dicey when we begin to look at a passage like this that calls us out, that perhaps tells us things about ourselves that we would much rather ignore. Lord, I, I, I don't mind seeing the sin in other people's lives. I just don't want to see it in mine. And in many ways, I think I'll, I'll go to my grave trying to defend my wrong heart and actions and attitudes, and I forget so quickly the cross of Christ and the grace that I need. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that this word would convict us in the right way, not to, not to beat us over the head, but, but to get us to an honest place where we can truly see our need for a Savior, and we can rejoice that much more in what you have done for us through Christ. Father, thank you for bringing every person who's in this room together this morning. I, I don't know all of them. I know many of them, but I don't know all of them. And I, and I don't know every situation and every heart and every home and every business and family that's represented here. But, Lord, you do. And you've brought us here for a purpose. And so I, I pray that you would come and teach us. My words are not important. You know my sin. I pray that it would not keep anyone from hearing what you want to say to us this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and teach us. We pray in your name. Amen. I want to kind of stick with the theme of, of do what I say and not what I, what I do. And what I would like to do this morning in, in this passage is I want to talk for a couple minutes about uh, what Paul is supposing that these folks are, are going to say in response to chapter 1 and the, and the statement that all of mankind is, is flawed. Uh, after we look at what they say, we want to consider what they do. Uh, how do they apply uh, what, what they're hearing? Uh, and then ask the question, okay, if there's a disconnect, if they're saying and doing something, if, if they've kind of come to the wrong conclusion, uh, then what we want to do is kind of say, okay, well, what should we be doing and, and, and how should we uh, respond appropriately? So first off, uh, what do they say? We're going to kind of bounce from verse to verse. So I'm going to do the outline on the, on the screen this morning. You'll be able to kind of look in your Bibles or, or follow along a bit on the screen. The first thing that they say is that there is a standard of right and wrong. Paul says uh, in verse 1 of chapter 2, you have no excuse, every man, every one of you who judges. The idea of judgment is that there is a balance. There is a scale. There is a right. There is a wrong. Uh, and these folks, whoever they may be, this man, whoever he is, has discerned that there is a right and a wrong. Now, that in and of itself in our day and age is quite a statement. There are, there are lots and lots and lots of man-centered philosophies out there that say there is no ultimate truth. Now, if you believe that, you can't even make the statement. You stop and think about that. But be that as it may, the idea of you have your truth, I have my truth, your truth might be different than her truth, her my truth's probably different than his truth, uh, we're not sure if he has any truth at all, but that's truth to him. And, and this idea that it's all kind of floating around out there and anything goes. 
And, and this person who is judging is saying, no, there is a standard. There is a right and there is a wrong. The second thing that they say is that God defines morality, not man. Man does not define morality, but, but God does. Look at verse 2. He goes on to say, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. This person, this, this man understands that he doesn't set the bar, that he doesn't make the rules, so to speak, that he isn't the one who can say, well, it's right in this situation, but it's wrong in this situation, uh, or that, that, that might be right for him, but it might not be right for her. He says, no, that, that's not up to me. God is the one who has said there is a holy standard. There is a right, and his judgment is going to rightly, justifiably fall on those who rebel against him. This person understands that God has the right, not just the authority, but that God is actually right in bringing judgment for those who rebel against him. So, so that, that's part of their message. The third part of the message is, you know what? We really affirm what Paul has said in chapter 1. Now, I'm not going to go back through and read that entire passage, but Paul basically talks about sexual immorality and then, and then an entire list of, of sins that are so commonplace uh, it's almost laughable to even consider whether or not they apply to our lives. Almost everything that Paul says in chapter 1, you can look at and say, okay, gossip, slander, uh, disobedient to parents, uh, malicious. I'd look at all these things and go, yes, yes, yes. I mean, how many times do I have to keep raising my hand? Yes, that's me. Yes, that's me. And, and so these folks affirm that Paul, yeah, Paul, that's right. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. In verse 3, he says this, Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who do such things. So they're, they're looking at others. They're seeing, that, they're seeing that they are certainly on the list, these other folks. And they're saying, you know what? I'm judging them as being wrong. I'm judging them as lacking some moral compass in their lives. Now, I got to tell you, as I look at these three things, um, there's nothing really wrong with the thinking as far as it goes, <laughs> These three statements, I believe, are accurate statements. There is a right and a wrong. I don't care how many people shout it. I don't care how loudly they shout it. You cannot have absolute truth be a moving target. It's either there or it's not. And so I affirm with these folks who say that there is a standard. I also agree wholeheartedly that it is God, the Creator and the Lord, who determines morality, not me and not you. And furthermore, I believe that Paul's list in chapter 1, as disturbing as it is, because it so reveals my heart, is an accurate list. So as far as the quote-unquote theology goes of these statements, I believe that they're sound reasoning. But something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. Not so much in what is said, but by what they do. What is it that Paul is calling out? Well, the first thing he's calling out is the fact that there, there's a, a, a willing, a willful uh, ignoring of my personal culpability. Look how Paul has to start this chapter. You have no excuse. You don't have an excuse. You cannot let yourself off the hook that easily. It's easy for me to point out your sin and then that exact same sin ignore in my own life. I was talking with a couple one time before they, uh, before they got married and we were doing some, some premarital counseling. And uh, he, was, he was trying to wrestle through the guy, the, the, the male in the, in the relationship, was trying to kind of figure out 
their conflict resolution skills or the lack thereof. Uh, why they had trouble fighting and, and, and working it out and getting to a, to a better place after they had a disagreement. And I said, well, you know, why don't you guys kind of unpack this for me? How do you guys, you know, what happens? What are the disagreements? You know, and they tended to be on kind of silly little things. They tended not to be on big issues. Uh, but as he began to tell me how he, you know, addressed this, one of the things he said was this. I'm the kind of guy that just wants to find out the source. I just want to get to the bottom line. I want to know what caused the argument. And at that point, she's kind of sitting there with her head down and her shoulders slumped, and she, is, she doesn't want to say anything. I said, well, well, tell me a little bit more about it. He goes, well, I think if you can get to the source, I think if you can figure out why it happened in the first place, then maybe you can avoid it the next time. I said, so let me get this straight. When you're in a conversation, you guys are in disagreement, you're saying, okay, okay, honey, sweetie, we got to figure out what caused this or who caused this or why this began. He goes, that's exactly right. I said, okay, how many times y'all have a disagreement on average? You know, I'm not talking about big bluffs, just how often do you disagree? Well, we figured out about two times a week. Okay, so 104 times a year, you have some kind of disagreement where you are trying to come to the rescue and get to the source of the issue. He said, yeah, that, that's about right. So again, let me ask you this question. How many times when you make the discovery, does it come back to you? And at that point, her shoulders started to shake. And she began to weep uncontrollably. I didn't have to say anything else, but I did. I just looked at him. I said, I'm guessing that the number is zero. He said, yeah. Friends, I can't condemn that guy because I do that myself. We want to blame the other person. We want to, to make an excuse. If the environment wasn't set up this way, this wouldn't have happened. And it has to be that you're wrong. It can't be that I'm wrong. And we will defend an indefendable position until the day we die. We ignore our own culpability. And Paul has to call us on the carpet. He says, no, no, no. None of us have any excuse whatsoever. Why is that? Well, the second part of what they do is that they practice the very vice that they condemn in others. And Paul says in, in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, he's very clear. We know that the judgment of God, excuse me, uh, verse uh, 1, I'm reading verse 2. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. How often do I, do I look at your life and see that stuff and, and ignore it in my life? One of the things that I'm very well aware of most often is that my daughter and I tend to be the ones who butt heads in our relationship. I tend to get along pretty easily with the boys, but Katie and I butt heads. You know why we butt heads so much? Because we're so much alike. <laughs> and I see that stuff in her like, I don't, Katie, I don't like that pride in your life. And Cindy kind of goes, what? <laughs> Excuse me? Hold on, I'm going to go get a mirror here so you can, you, can, you can look at it. We practice the very same thing that we condemn in others. But it gets even worse than that. Not only do we do that, but, but we pretty much ignore or misappropriate, is the term I use there, God's mercy. Do you suppose, Paul asked the question in verse 3, you who do such things and judge others, that you will escape the judgment of God? There is a radically misplaced assumption of innocence in my life and maybe in yours. We think everybody else has a problem, but we don't want to acknowledge that we have an issue and we refuse to understand that there will come a day, there will come a moment where we have to stand before God and we have to answer for the thoughts and the words and the decisions and the actions of our life. 
We so much spend so much time being the judge that we forget that one day we will stand in the dock and we will be the one who is called to account for our actions. And we assume that God's mercy is meant uh, because we are good folks and we don't really need any help. Which leads us to Paul's assumption or Paul's understanding of verse 4 where he says, you guys take liberties instead of responsibilities. Verse 4 is a profound verse. It's one of those verses in Romans. If you want to memorize verses in Romans, this should be one of them. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul says there is a richness, there is a kindness, there is a, a grace of God that is deeper than the depths of the ocean is wider than the expanse of the universe. But instead of allowing that, that mercy and that forbearance to, to show you your sin and to show you your need for a Savior, it just has allowed you to live in a way where you feel free to judge others while ignoring your own sin. Which leads to the conclusion in verse 5 that they are hurtling headfirst into disaster. They are racing for disaster. You are storing up wrath for yourselves. Why? Because of your hard and impertinent heart. Paul is talking to religious people. He's not talking to, to people that we would maybe consider bad people or evil people. He's talking to church folks. He's talking to the religious. And he's saying, you're, you're, I don't know how it happened, but somehow your theology has led you in the complete opposite direction in which you should be moving. Your theology, your understanding that there's a standard of right and wrong, that God defines it, and that you're included in that list should drive you to your knees and ask God for forgiveness. And instead, it has caused within you a self-righteousness that is detestable. When we are quick to see the sin in others and turn a blind eye to our own evil, is it any wonder that the world doesn't want to have anything to do with us? It should not come as a surprise the people, the response of a couple of those folks. They'd obviously been in situations where good church people had really abused them in some way and then pretended to be okay. Well, what should they do? If that's what they say and that's what they, that's what they do, what, is there a different response? What should they say? What should they do? Now, when I ask that question, what I'm really saying is how do you and I apply this text? Because <laughs> we are the they. Let's be clear about that. Paul's talking to you and me this morning. He's not talking to the guy out on the street. He's talking to us. How do we apply this text this morning? Well, the first one, first application is this. Affirm the truth and apply the same standards to ourselves. Paul says, you condemn yourselves by your very action. In other words, I need to understand that, that yes, the, the list is good. <laughs> what Paul has said, the theology is accurate, but it applies to me. I'm the guilty one before God. Now, you may be too, but, but I'm, I, my deal with my guilt is enough for me. There aren't enough hours in the day for me to deal with my guilt and then have time to tell you how bad you are. I need to be willing to understand and look at my own heart and see that that, that, that person on the street, do they need a Savior? Absolutely. Have they committed those sins? No question about it. I'm not letting them off the hook either, but it starts with me. I'm in the very same position. If they need a Savior, I need a Savior. There are no good people in church, beginning with the pastor and everybody else. And we have to fight against the notion that somehow... 
this idea of being a good Christian as if in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own self-righteousness, so to speak, we have somehow gotten God to love us and treat us better because of who we are. We have to fight against that notion. We have to live transparent lives in front of people. If you want a good practical uh, application for how to, how to make sure that you're living in front of folks and they're seeing you for who you are, just have them over to your house for supper. <laughs> just call your neighbors and say, come on over. Let's have dinner. They won't be in your house more than 20 minutes before they begin to see the sin patterns in your life. That's what happens to me. I have friends over. We sit down and we start talking. We have, have a nice time. And all of a sudden, you know, maybe Cindy and I get crossways. And there's Tom being a great sinner right in front of his guests. We need, to, we need to do everything we can to understand that we are the ones who need grace before we point it out to, to anybody else. I have single-handedly, uh, by coaching hockey in Kirkwood for about the last 15 years, have absolved the entire hockey community of the notion that pastors are good people. <laughs> what are you doing to do your part? <laughs> I'm not proud of that statement, but it's true. There were Sundays when I would come and preach and sometimes when the boys were little and I would say, God, don't let the referee show up this morning. <laughs> what a disaster that would be. Why? Because I'm ashamed of the sin in my own life. The first application is I've got to look in the mirror. It has to apply to me. The second thing they should be doing, you and I, I think, should be doing this morning is abandoning this self righteous judgment. I'm going to go back to verse 1 for just a second. You have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment you condemn yourself. Uh, You who judge practice this same thing. Now, I think there's a fine line here, and I I want to kind of just go on a side road for just a second. I think there's a fine line here. Because we, we have to stand for the truth. I said this two weeks ago, and I'll say it again. I can't tell you that sin isn't sin. I can't tell you that the bad decisions that you make or the bad decisions I make, going back and looking at chapter 1 and looking at this list, I can't tell you that that's okay. I can't tell you that, that there's nothing wrong with making those choices and living in that manner. It simply would not be accurate. But there's a fine line when you stand for the truth you better stand for it in a, in a humble way, understanding, again, that it applies to you. I was talking to, uh, I was talking to a young man one time about, uh, about God's standard uh, and about this list in, in chapter 1, and he said, well, who are you to say that that's an accurate list? And I said, well, the good news is uh, two things. One, I'm not the guy who says. It's God. I believe this is God's Word, and I believe it, this is God's speaking mercy into our lives. And the second thing I can tell you is that I live in chapter 1. I know what that means. I see it in my own life. This idea of self-righteous judgment has to be something from which we flee as fast as we possibly can. How do you do that? How do you run away from self-righteousness? How do you steel yourself against that temptation? Because it will come. You turn on the news, you see something happen, and you go, boy, what a terrible person. How awful they are. It'll be right there at your doorstep. So how do we abandon it? Well, I think verse 4 gives us a, a, a good understanding and a good help in this area. Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that this kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The third application of this text is to practice daily 
repentance. Now, that's a word that it might be new to some of you. It might actually be a word with which some of you are familiar. You may have not heard that word before. You may not understand the biblical context of it. So I'm going to give you a very quick understanding of this word. And for some of you, this is repetition, but that's okay. It won't hurt any of us. Repentance means, first of all, that I acknowledge my condition, that I understand that there's something fundamentally wrong with me that I didn't just make a little mistake, that I didn't just kind of blow it over here, but, but I'm really a good person, I'll, and I, you know, I'll be able to kind of rise above and do better the next time, and, and that I'm, you know, basically I'm okay. Repentance means acknowledging, first of all, that, that my condition is a broken condition, that I am flawed, that I will continue to practice these things. I'll continue to have these thoughts. I'll continue to say the, those, those things, those cutting comments that I shouldn't say. I'll continue to behave in a way that that is unhealthy for myself and hurtful towards others. I have to acknowledge that condition. The second step in repentance is that I need to grieve over that. I need to understand the pain that's caused in my life. That that conversation I, I spoke to you all about just a few moments ago, I was so happy that that happened, not because she was weeping, but because they now have an opportunity. He now has a chance to grieve over the sin of condemnation of this one who he's going to call his bride. He now has a chance to see it for what it is. And if we see it for what it is, it ought to cause us to grieve. If you don't, if you're here this morning, you don't believe in God, and you're just, you know, somebody brought you and you're being polite, or you don't think you have a need for Jesus, okay, uh, we can talk about that some more. But would you be willing enough to look at your own life and see the pain you've caused to others? There isn't a person in this room, I don't care how hard you try. I don't care how self-determined you are. I don't care how much self-discipline you have in your life. You've hurt other people. Your brokenness, my brokenness, is not just caused a a gap in my relationship with God, but it's also done great damage to the people around us, and that ought to cause me to grieve. I was talking to a couple in my office one time, and they got done telling me their story, and I looked at him, and I said, I don't understand one thing. He said, what? I said, I don't understand why you're not lying on my floor weeping right now for what you've done in this relationship. I said, I want to lay down and cry because of, because of the situation. Daily repentance means grieving over the way in which we've offended God and hurt others. Third part of repentance means to confess, means to acknowledge, means to share it with somebody else. It means to say to God, God, I know I'm in chapter one. I, I see it. I'm there. I get it. It means maybe to say to a spouse or a business partner or a child, I know that I have grossly offended you in the way in which I've treated you or the way in which I spoke to you is extremely harmful. And we confess that sin. We get it out in the open. We bring the light of the gospel to shine upon it. And then the fourth part of repentance is, is turning away, which means saying, you know, I don't want to live there anymore. Understanding that that's a daily activity. You're going to have to purposely turn away on a regular basis. You need to be proactive, not waiting for the sin to occur. If you know you have the temptation of gossip, let's just use that as an example because it's one of the sins in chapter 1. If you know that's a temptation in your life and you love to share, you love to get those prayer requests out there for everybody. We're praying for Susie because she was, you know, she was so drunk at the reception the other night, we just need to lift her up in prayer. If, if you live in that place... <laughs> If there's anybody here named Susie, I don't know if you were at a reception last night or not. If you're a visitor, the reason why they're laughing is because I step into this kind of situation time and time again. Somebody goes, I'm Susie. How did you know that about me? I I, I didn't. Um, What on earth were we talking about? Be proactive with that sin. In other words, find five really good Christian friends and say, I'm the biggest gossip walking around on the planet. Would you please ask me occasionally how I'm doing with that? Get it out on the table. 
You're like, oh, that's so embarrassing. I couldn't let anybody know I'm a gossip. Everybody knows you're a gossip already. <laughs> you're not, you're, <laughs> take the rose-colored glasses off, friends. And I have to do the same thing. I, I was having a cup of coffee Thursday morning with a young pastor here in town who I loved dearly. He was in one of my uh, preaching classes at seminary several years ago. And I, I just, every time I get together with him, we have a good time. And he came in Thursday morning. His shoulders were slumped. He was just, he was worn out. And we started talking, and, uh, and he started to share with me some of the, and I know some of the sin patterns in his life, and he knows some in my life because they're, they're very similar. And I said, it got the better of you, didn't it? Got the better of you, didn't it? He goes, I don't know how. I said, well, let's talk about how. And you know what? You're in a safe place. I don't think any worse of you. <laughs> I, I, trust me. It, that's the worst thing you do. I'm so far ahead of you, it's unbelievable. And, and the bad part, not the good part. And we were able to just talk about it. I said, now that I, now that I know that's where you are and that's what's going on, I'm not only going to pray for you, but I'm going to call you every once in a while and say, how are you doing? And you do the same for me. Some of you guys are in Bible studies with me. You know I tell you some of my junk. I'm not going to get it all out this morning, but you know I tell it to you, and I know I tell you to call me and to talk to me and make sure that I'm living in a way that honors Christ. That's repentance. Repentance is proactive. It's not waiting until the sin happens and then feeling bad. It's saying, I know there's this pattern in my life, and I want to deal with it now. One of the ways that we apply this text is the daily repentance. And I'll give you one more application and it's this live in joyful thanksgiving in a way that everybody can see in verse four paul says this um do you presume upon the riches of god's kindness so on and so forth not knowing that god's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance now if you've been a disciple of jesus for a while you know that that's where repentance is supposed to lead to it, it lead, or, or what uh, god's showing you this is supposed to do it's supposed to lead you to repentance but there are a lot of people that don't know that there are a lot of people and that's why they don't like church because they, they haven't gotten that part of it yet that we're not good people we're repentant people but repentance leads us to joy and thanksgiving for what god has done for us and you need to live that out so the people can see it. So when somebody says, you know, you guys over there at Green Tree, you're really good people and you don't have those struggles, you say, wait a minute, time out. You know what? You want to know why I'm so joyful? You want to know why I'm so excited about life? It's not because I'm a good person. It's because I'm, I'm forgiven. It's because I'm forgiven. It's because I have God's grace in my life, not because I've done anything to earn it. And allow that joy of God's grace to be a demonstration for others who may not know. Don't do what I say and don't do what I do is really bad instruction. I think a better way to look at it is to say, look at what God says. His word is truth and we can respond to that in faith and in trust in him, not in ourselves, which leads us to a humility and a gentleness that will be attractive to the world. People are longing for this, friends. They may not know it. They may be looking for it in a bottle. They might be looking for it on the internet, but what they're looking for is acceptance and love and purpose and meaning in their lives. And Paul says, you guys got to stop judging. That's not your role. (laughs) Your role is to live out the gospel, to live out God's grace so that those who don't know it can come and come experience I was talking to a guy yesterday. You're going to have to stay with me on this one. I was talking to a guy yesterday who's from Slovenia, who, which is just in the northeast, from, uh, northeast of Italy, who's living in San Francisco and visiting in St. Louis. <laughs> so three S's, Slovenia, San Francisco, St. Louis. Uh, long story about how I'm having this conversation. We begin, we begin to talk about church. And he can't quite figure out how I'm a priest. 
So we had to start there and kind of un- unpack that since that's not really my title and, and, and it's different in, 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 uh, in our culture than it wasn't his. But he, he, he began to, to uh, bemoan the fact that he couldn't find a good church. And I said, well, why not? What, what does that mean to you? He said, I can't find a place where people won't condemn me. It all seems like it's there to tell me how bad I am. And we had a chance. It was just, this was like a three-minute conversation. We had just a tiny little chance to talk about the gospel. Friends, the Western culture is turning away from the church in droves, and for some reason, I don't blame them. On some level, I understand. We have an uphill battle before us to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into a community, into a culture that has some preconceived notions about us because that's the way we've lived in front of them. I believe this morning God is calling us as a congregation to repentance and to a firm commitment and a longing in our hearts and a willingness to share the journey with one another in a manner that brings glory to God because we live not as self-righteous people but as forgiven people. And we have in our hearts a deep desire not only to live in that way and apply it to ourselves, but to share it with those around us. What we should be doing is seeing ourselves for who we are, seeing God's grace for what it is, and in humility and gentleness and with compassion, living that out for the world to see. Let's pray. Father, these words in Romans are right to the point. They're right to the heart. Lord, how often I sit in judgment of others when really what I should do is just pick up a mirror and and take a look. Lord, it's not that the list of sins is wrong. It's not that that, uh, anything goes and that we're going to say it's okay to live in self-destructive manner. Father, it's not wrong to say that there is a right and a wrong and you are the one who sets that. But Lord, we're... Where we get off track is where we begin to think that we have it all right. (laughs) Instead of remembering that that list includes us and that we need the cross of Christ as much or more than anybody else around us. Father, I pray this morning that that we would be a, a spiritual family that practices daily repentance, that avoids self righteous judgment like the plague that stands on your truth, stands for exactly what what you have said to us, but in a way that allows others to see that we understand we need a Savior too and that you have provided the Lord Jesus for that very reason. We pray all this in his name. Amen.